Hello again, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. It's mid-May 2020. We're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I'm sure we're all feeling a little stressed at times, frustrated with always being at home, can't go to our favorite restaurants, no baseball or soccer on the TV. But guess what? You are still battling ahead. You know this isn't going to last forever, and you're a trooper, and you're going to ride out the storm so you can stick around and help make this planet wonderful for your families, friends, and communities. Thanks to all of you that have still been working out there as well, still taking care of patients or stocking grocery shelves, still running deliveries or working from home, we appreciate your efforts. Thanks to our Patreon crew, your support means a lot to us, and we appreciate your generosity. If you have a second, check out patreon.com forward slash Pod, where you too can become a supporter of PCPC for as little as one American dollar a month. We'd appreciate it. You help make the episodes keep a coming. Today is episode 22 of PCPC, and for today's show, we're going to be taking a look at Aloha Airlines Flight 243 a scheduled flight from Hilo to Honolulu on April 28th, 1988. On the podcast today is arguably the most important human being to walk God's green earth, <laughs> the queen of the kitchen and producer of PCPC, Miss Tess Andrade. Thank you so much for that very grand introduction, Michael. No problem. How are you doing? Uh, what have you been up to this week? I'm doing great. Um, this week, I've been working on my herb garden nice. that I have going. I got some basil and some cilantro this week. Ah. And um, I've been watching a lot of content, weirdly, about UFOs. Whoa. Um, I don't know if you saw some of the headlines in the news about the military releasing these videos of um, aerial phenomena that they aren't able to explain. And they're, no. they're um, basically acknowledging that they don't know what, what these objects are. So that kind of got me on a kick of watching this documentary on the History Channel. Mm-hmm about ufos and i gotta say i am somewhat of a believer whoa now. i did not see that one coming i know it's a total curveball <laughs> what about you what are you up to these days well Michael? i would say i've been up to something i guess equally strange i've been obsessed with the unabomber this week for some reason i watched a documentary on netflix and then suddenly i start listening to this audio telling of his writings it's pretty interesting he goes on this whole diatribe about how the industrial system has taken away purpose and power from mankind we don't get to experience something called the power process where we get to feel in control of our lives I start to find it pretty interesting and I find myself agreeing with a lot of what he has to say. And then he'll just sprinkle in something like, and that's why I had to kill people. And I'm like, well, you lost me there, buddy. Yep. You lost me at kill. Yeah. I bet there have been a lot of great artists and authors through the ages that made amazing pieces of art and they didn't have to kill people for publicity. Hmm. Well, it sounds like we've been keeping busy, um, educating ourselves on niche interests. Yeah, just trying to keep the brain busy these days. Well, Tess, the four major U.S. airlines, Southwest, American, Delta, and United, announced this past week that they have been averaging just 17 passengers per flight domestically. International flights are averaging just 29 passengers 3,000 aircraft have already been grounded due to decreased travel demand due to the coronavirus pandemic. 
80% of scheduled flights through June have been canceled. Aircraft manufacturer Boeing has announced 16,000 people will be laid off by the end of 2020. General Electric Aviation announced they'll also be cutting 13,000 employees from their workforce by the end of the year. United Airlines plans to cut over 3,000 jobs from their administrative workforce. So it seems as though 2020 has been kind of a nightmare scenario for many industries out there, but things couldn't be much worse for the airline industry right now. No one wants to fly anywhere, and this decreased demand means a lot of jobs are going to be lost. Can you see this airline industry rebounding in the near future, or do you think it's going to be stuck in the mud for a while? Well, Michael, um, I obviously don't have a crystal ball Mm -hmm. um, or any kind of expertise in this topic, but... I think it's going to take a while. I think for as long as we're fighting this thing, the airline industry is going to struggle. I do think that traveling will eventually return to normal. That's my hope anyway, since I'm a big traveler. Yeah. I think this is a very unique, even beyond once in a generation, this is a once in a century event. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, but if you look at pandemics of the past, they are long, they are painful, but they eventually come to an end. And hopefully this is just a painful experience that we here on planet Earth in 2020 have to endure. But maybe we can look at it as like a sacrifice that we're going to learn a lot of painful lessons as a society. So human beings in the future don't have to go through the same pain that we're currently going through. Absolutely, Michael. I mean, this is a historical event that we're going to generations to come. We'll look back on this and learn from lessons and the mistakes that we made. So yeah, one thing I was thinking about was, and I think we've even commented on this in the past is over the past two decades, it seems like airlines are increasingly trying to pack as many people in an economy as they can. This is leading to less room for people. And maybe, you know, flying in the future will be more expensive, but with that expense, maybe airlines will learn to give people more room. It seems I can't imagine people going back immediately into being crushed into economy. Yeah, definitely. We've talked a lot about how basic economy crams its passengers in like sardines. So hopefully one of the positive consequences of all this is that we will have a little more leg room perhaps yeah Yeah, we'll have to pay more but maybe some more space better we'll all be in spacesuits like astronauts going to the moon but we'll really just be flying from lax to boston exactly well i know you were a spaceman one year for halloween so you you got it covered i already got the suit just need the helmet one other thought i had was uh maybe uh you know how oxygen bars were really popular maybe 15 20 years ago or at least they tried to be popular yeah definitely middle like, school me was all up in that trend <laughs> what if you get on a plane and immediately you just put on your oxygen mask i mean the planes are already a- equipped for oxygen and they have tubes and if you just put it over your face you're just breathing fresh oxygen until they can you know assure you that you're not going to be breathing tainted cabin air Possibly. Feels a little weird just visually, but um, <laughs> a very creative idea. Maybe it's a dumb idea. I just thought if you could pick the scented purified air that was going into your body, maybe that would be a little bit better than saying, hey, I'm going to roll the dice and just breathe the same air as all 200 people around me. Yeah, people will be like, hey, can I get some bubblegum oxygen instead yeah. of that corona-infused air that has been pumped through the Earth's atmosphere? Do you have anything strawberry-scented? <laughs> If you're writing out this quarantine and wish you had a qualified, intelligent, objective person to talk through some of the things that are bothering you or develop some goals to work toward, BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century that takes place completely online from the comfort of your own home. 
If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks to BetterHelp. If I could just piggyback off of what you said, Michael, if this quarantine could have a theme, I would say the theme would be self care, self help. And um, therapy is a huge part of self-care, I think. Personally, I've been addicted, absolutely addicted to talking to my therapist. Well, you should talk to your therapist <laughs> about that addiction. <laughs> exactly. We're working through that together. Um, but it's, it's incredibly helpful during times like these. This podcast was started as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts. We've always been nervous flyers, and we thought that if we learned a little bit more about how planes fly and how these crashes of the past happened, maybe it would reduce some of our anxieties surrounding flying. We understand that what we discuss is a traumatic event in the lives of many human beings out there, human beings with families, friends, neighbors, and we never want to be disrespectful or inconsiderate of that fact. We just think discussing how these crashes of the past took place and the changes that came about after each accident that have improved the safety of air travel is an important discussion to have. You ready to get started, Tess? I was born ready, Michael. Aloha Airlines Flight 243 was a scheduled flight from Hilo International Airport on the Big Island of Hawaii to Honolulu International Airport on the island of Oahu on Thursday, April 28, 1988. The plane used for Flight 243 was a Boeing 737-297 or 200 series aircraft. The Boeing 737 is the second highest selling commercial jetliner in history, just behind the Airbus A320 family. The original 737 was developed by Boeing in the mid-1960s. The first design for the 737 had two rear-mounted engines, similar to the 727, but the design evolved during the development phase and it was decided to move the two engines from the rear of the plane forward to underneath each wing. With one engine beneath each wing, the engines were closer to the ground, so inspections and the servicing of engines were easier for maintenance workers to complete. The change also made the aircraft lighter, so the fuselage was widened to accommodate six abreast seating instead of the originally planned five abreast seating. On February 19, 1965, Lufthansa placed an order for 21 737-100 series aircraft, thus becoming the first airline to purchase the 737. The 737-100 had a passenger capacity of 103, with a range of 1,540 nautical miles. So this 737-100 was designed for airlines that needed to fly shorter routes, with around 100 customers on board. The 737-100 entered commercial service with Lufthansa three years after their initial order in February 1968. As Boeing was developing the 737-100 series aircraft, they also received feedback from a number of airlines that were impressed with this new design, but they wanted a slightly larger plane that could fly a longer distance and accommodate more passengers. So Boeing modified their original design to come up with the 737-200 series. The 200 series was a little over 6 feet longer than the 100 series, increasing passenger capacity to 115. The 200 series had a range of 2,600 nautical miles, so it can fly over 1,000 miles further than the 100 series. United Airlines was the first airline to purchase the 737-200 series aircraft, and they received their first delivered plane in April 1968, just two months after Lufthansa accepted their 100 series plane. 
Boeing would go on to sell 991 737-200 series aircraft. Aloha Airlines was founded as a charter carrier by businessman Ruddy Tong Sr. in July 1946. Initially named Trans-Pacific Airlines, the company started off operating one plane, a Douglas C-47, between Hilo, Maui, and Honolulu. After three years of booking out these chartered flights in June 1949, Trans-Pacific started flying regularly scheduled flights after receiving its certification. In 1950, the airline officially changed its name to the Aloha Airline, which was its nickname in its early years, before eventually settling on Aloha Airlines in 1958. While the airline aspired to one-day service flights between Hawaii and the U.S. and China, in its early years, Aloha focused on flights between the Hawaiian Islands and engaged in competition with Hawaiian Airlines. Both airlines were constantly trying to outdo the other by purchasing the latest and most efficient planes on the market, trying to keep that competitive edge. In the 1960s, Aloha went from flying Vickers Viscounts to BAC-111s, and in 1968, the company decided it wanted to upgrade again. Aloha Airlines needed a new plane, a plane that was efficient at flying short routes, could fly multiple flights per day, and could fly a moderately large group of passengers. Enter the Boeing 737-200 series. In 1968, Aloha Airlines ordered two Boeing 737-200 series aircraft. The plane used for Aloha Flight 243 was the 152nd 737-200 series plane built by Boeing. This aircraft used for Flight 243 was manufactured in 1969 and delivered to Aloha Airlines on May 10, 1969. In the 1970s and 1980s, Aloha Airlines flew many short flights between the Hawaiian Islands daily. The plane used for Flight 243 had 35,496 flight hours and 89,680 flight cycles. So that means 89,680 times this plane took off, went up in the sky, and landed on a runway. At the time of the incident, this plane used for Flight 243 had the second highest total of flight cycles of any Boeing 737 on the entire planet. So let's just say it had been around the block. Yeah, let's say this plane is no spring chicken. In the report, only one prior incident was mentioned in regards to this aircraft. In 1979, the plane flew into some clear air turbulence and two flight attendants were injured, but no damage or repair was required on the aircraft. At the time of the incident, the Aloha Airlines fleet was 11 planes, all Boeing 737s. The captain of Flight 243 was 44-year-old Captain Robert Schornsteimer. Captain Schornsteimer was hired by Aloha Airlines on May 31, 1977, so he had been with the company for almost 11 years at the time of the incident. Initially a first officer, he was upgraded to captain in June 1987. Prior to working for Aloha Airlines, the captain spent eight years in the Air Force, primarily as an instructor pilot. He then went on to work as an air traffic controller at a marine base on the island of Oahu for eight months before joining Aloha Airlines. Captain Schornsteimer had 8,500 flight hours, 6,700 hours flying Boeing 737s. The first officer of Flight 243 was 37-year-old First Officer Madeline Mimi Tompkins. First Officer Tompkins was hired by Aloha Airlines as a first officer on June 4, 1979. 
She was due to start her formal captain upgrade training, so she had been studying hard for that in the months prior to Flight 243. At the time of the incident, First Officer Tompkins had 8,000 flight hours, 3,500 hours flying Boeing 737s. There were three flight attendants on board. Flight attendant Clarabelle Lansing was 58 years old at the time. She had been working for Aloha for the previous 37 years since being hired in August 1951. Flight attendant Michelle Honda was 35 at the time. She had been with Aloha since July 1974. Lastly, flight attendant Jane Sato Tomita was 43 years old at the time of the incident, and she had been hired by Aloha in December 1969. Flight 243 had 89 passengers and an air traffic controller seated in the observer seat in the cockpit, a crew of two pilots, three flight attendants for a total of 95 human beings on board. So Captain Schornsheimer shows up to work at Honolulu International at 5.10 a.m. on April 28, 1988. In the dispatch office, he attends to his pre-departure duties. Ten minutes later, his first first officer of the day, not first officer Madeline Tompkins, a male first officer, had checked in with the dispatch office and performed a pre-flight inspection of the plane. This first officer looks over the plane's maintenance logs and performs a visual inspection of the exterior of the plane. This first officer doesn't see anything unusual during his evaluation of the plane. He felt the aircraft was ready to fly safely for the day. Captain Schornsheimer and his male first officer then complete six flights during the morning hours of April 28th. They fly three round trips, one from Honolulu to Hilo and back. Next, they fly from Honolulu to Maui and back. And then another round trip from Honolulu to Kauai and back. No external inspections of the plane are done in between these flights. After the sixth flight, while in Honolulu, there's a first officer change. First officer Madeline Tompkins replaces the early morning first officer at 11 a.m. The new crew of Captain Timer and first officer Tompkins then fly the plane from Honolulu to Maui and then continue on from Maui to Hilo. So at 1 p.m. on April 28, 1988, the crew and plane are at Hilo International Airport. Captain Schornsheimer is preparing for already his ninth flight of the day. This next flight is our flight, Flight 243 from Hilo to Honolulu. This flight will be First Officer Tompkins' third flight of the day. The crew was not required to and did not perform any external inspection of the plane while at Hilo International. The two pilots didn't even leave the cockpit. Flight 243 from Hilo to Honolulu was scheduled to be a short 35-minute journey. The plan for Flight 243 is simple. To take off from Hilo, turn to the northwest, climb to 24,000 feet, cruise alongside the southern coast of Maui for a few minutes, and then descend down to land at Honolulu International. Kaului Airport in Maui was picked out as an alternate airport. So passengers board the plane and pre-flight checks are completed. An air traffic controller hitching a ride sits down in the jump seat of the cockpit. Engine start goes normal, and after a few moments of taxiing, Aloha Airlines Flight 243 takes off from Hilo International Airport en route to Honolulu International at 1.25 p.m. First Officer Tompkins is flying the plane, and Captain Schornsheimer is handling the radio communications. In the passenger cabin, because the flight's so short, flight attendants are up quickly after takeoff to start beverage service. 
They want to get passengers a nice cool drink so they can enjoy their trip high above the Hawaiian Islands. At 1.44 p.m., 19 minutes after takeoff, the plane is approaching its planned cruising altitude of 24,000 feet. In the cockpit, Captain Schwarzheimer is talking to the air traffic controller seated in the jump seat, while First Officer Tompkins is flying the plane. The captain says, are you going straight this time to Honolulu now, or are you going to... The air traffic controller seated inside the cockpit says, well, we have friends celebrating their 50th anniversary. A few seconds pass. Captain Schwarzheimer is looking out the window, and he asks, where's that National Weather Service weather station out here? Is that at the old tower? The controller responds, yeah, old tower. The captain asks, they don't have any radios or anything, any air-to-ground radios, do they? But before the controller can respond to this question, at 1.45 p.m. and 42 seconds, On April 28, 1988, as Aloha Airlines Flight 243 is cruising along at 24,000 feet, a massive ripping sound tears through the passenger cabin behind the pilots. A loud whoosh of air fills the cockpit and the rest of the plane. The cockpit door is torn from its hinges and instantaneously disappears. Captain Schornsheimer looks behind him through the cockpit doorframe and sees blue sky where the first class ceiling used to be. In an instant, 18 and a half feet of the fuselage skin, the side walls and ceiling of the airplane had been ripped off of the 737. From the cockpit all the way to about where the wings are, the aircraft looks like it's been converted into an open air top deck of a sightseeing bus. 300 mile an hour winds fill the passenger cabin and blast passengers with a bitter cold assault of hurricane force winds at temperatures up to negative 50 degrees. Because the plane's at 24,000 feet, there's very little oxygen and passengers are struggling to breathe. It's pandemonium. Along with the walls and ceiling of the plane went the oxygen mass and tubing, so the only way these passengers are going to be able to breathe is if the pilots can get down in altitude very quickly. Flight attendant Jane Sato Tomita was at row two immediately prior to the explosion. She's been knocked unconscious by flying debris that has struck her in the head. Flight attendant Michelle Honda was at row 15 when the incident started. Michelle Honda is initially knocked to the floor and she clings to the metal bars underneath the seats as passengers try to help her and hold her down to keep her from being sucked out of the plane. In the cockpit, First Officer Tompkins' head is jerked backwards and gray pieces of insulation swirl around in the air. Captain Schornsheimer takes over the controls for Flight 243, but the controls feel loose. The plane's rolling to the left, then to the right. First Officer Tompkins, Captain Schornsheimer, and the air traffic controller in the cockpit all put on their oxygen masks, and the captain begins an emergency descent. Captain Schornsheimer extends the speed brakes and turns on the passenger's emergency oxygen. Flight 243's airspeed is 290 knots, and the plane is descending at a rate of 4,100 feet per minute. In the passenger cabin, it's chaos. Cold wind is blasting through the cabin, Debris is flying through the air, and no one can see if anyone's in the cockpit at all. All anyone knows for sure is what they can see with their eyes, and what they see is a giant hole in the ceiling at the front of the plane, and they can feel the plane descending quickly. A passenger asks flight attendant Michelle Honda, do we have a pilot? And the flight attendant responds, I don't know. Then flight attendant Michelle Honda, that was just slammed to the floor by the force of the blast and is unsure of the status of the pilots, tells passengers to buckle their seatbelts. She walks to the back of the plane and tries to call the pilots in the cockpit, but she can't get through. 
Fearing the worst, flight attendant Honda asks a few passengers towards the back of the cabin, can you fly a plane? And no passenger responds in the affirmative. Because of the enormous noise in the cockpit, the two pilots communicate with one another via hand signals. Captain's now flying the plane, and First Officer Tompkins takes over radio communications. Initially at 1.46 p.m., 30 seconds into the incident, she tries to contact Honolulu Air Route Traffic Control Center. Center, Aloha 243. Center, Aloha 243. We're going down. Request lower. With all the noise of the rushing air in the cockpit, First Officer Tompkins can't hear any radio communications, and she's unsure if anyone's receiving her transmission. After two minutes of trying to reach Honolulu Center to no avail, First Officer Tompkins switches the radio over to Maui Tower Frequency. As Flight 243 is descending and passing through 14,000 feet at 1.48 p.m., First Officer Tompkins radios over Maui Tower, Aloha 243. Finally, the first officer gets a response, and the tower employee at Kahului Airport says, Calling tower, say again. First officer Tompkins radios back, Maui Tower, Aloha 243, we're inbound for landing, we're just uh, to the west of McKenna, just to the east of McKenna, descending out of 13, we have rapid, uh, we are unpressurized, declaring an emergency. There's a bit of miscommunication for the next minute while this tower employee figures out what this unexpected plane is trying to communicate to him. First Officer Tompkins repeats their location again, says the plane's now at 11,000 feet and requests emergency equipment. Maui Tower responds, okay, equipment's on the way, squawk 0343. The controller at Maui Tower relays a message to emergency services on the ground that there's an inbound plane that has suffered an explosive decompression and needs emergency equipment. Rescue vehicles line up on the left side of runway 02 at Kahului Airport in Maui. Honolulu Center contacts Maui Approach Control and tells them that they've picked up an emergency code from an Aloha 737 and Maui should be advised that the plane might be heading in its direction. Maui Approach tells Honolulu Center that they're already aware of the situation and that Flight 243 is headed to Maui Airport. At 1.50 p.m., Maui Tower radios, Aloha 243, wind 040 at 15, altimeter 2-9-9-9-9, just to verify again, you're breaking up. Your call sign is 244, is that correct, or 243? First Officer Tompkins responds, 243, Aloha 243. Maui Tower radio is back, 242, the equipment's on the roll, plan straight in, runway 02, I'll keep you advised of any wind change. First Officer Tompkins acknowledges the message with Aloha 243. As the plane passes through 10,000 feet, the pilots take off their oxygen masks and the noise has died down. They can hear each other and hear inside the cockpit now. A few seconds pass and the tower controller at Kahului Airport asks Flight 243 to change their frequency to 119.5, which was the frequency for approach control so that approach control could monitor the flight. In the chaos of the moment, the pilots in the cockpit didn't switch frequencies. They stayed tuned in to the tower at Kahului. At 1.52 p.m., Maui Tower radios over that Flight 243 is cleared to land on runway 02, but the flight is still several miles and minutes away. First Officer Tompkins asks Captain Schornstheimer, want the gear, in reference to the landing gear? The captain says no. The pilots attempt to communicate with the flight attendants, but the lines of communication have been severed in the explosive decompression. Captain Schornstheimer says to his first officer, uh, tell him, uh, we'll need assistance to evacuate this airplane. First officer Tompkins says, all right. And the captain continues, 
We really can't communicate with the flight attendants, but we'll need trucks and an air stair from Aloha. First Officer Tompkins radios to Maui Tower. We're going to need assistance. We cannot communicate with the flight attendants. We'll need assistance for the passengers when we land. As the plane passes through 10,000 feet, the captain starts slowing the plane. He calls for flaps 15, and he finds out that as the plane slows down, it becomes less controllable. When the airspeed falls below 170 knots, it becomes harder to keep a hold on the aircraft. Captain Schornsheimer says flight controls feels like manual reversion. Basically, if any of you out there have experienced driving an older car with no power steering, the captain's control column has a similar feel to it as the plane slows. It's a lot of effort to turn the control column suddenly. First Officer Tompkins asks the captain, can we maintain altitude okay? Captain Schwartzheimer replies, let's try flying with the gear down here. First Officer Tompkins says, all right, you got it, and she lowers the landing gear. Maui Tower radios over, Aloha 243, can you give me your souls on board? The first officer replies, we have 86 plus 5 crew members. As the landing gear comes down, the lights on the cockpit display for the rear gear light up green, confirming that the rear gear is down, but the nose gear confirmation light stays unlit. The light confirming the nose gear is down does not turn green, but it also doesn't turn red. A red light would indicate that it was unsafe. Now, it could be that the nose gear isn't down at all, or it could be that the explosive decompression just took out the wiring to the light to confirm that the nose gear was down. Either way, it's just another issue these pilots have to worry about when they're already dealing with a super stressful situation. First Officer Tompkins says to the Maui Tower, there's a possibility that we won't have nose gear. Now, if this nose gear confirmation issue was the only issue this plane was dealing with, the plane could do a flyby of the tower and have the tower check out visually when they fly by whether the nose gear is down or not. Given the poor condition of the aircraft at the moment, the pilots decide they're going to land this plane as soon as possible, with nose gear or without nose gear. They don't believe the plane has enough structural integrity to start doing fly-by confirmations with the tower and then circling around again for another approach to land. Captain Schwartzheimer says to First Officer Tompkins, Tell him we got such problems, we're going to land anyway, even without a nose gear, but they should be aware we do not have a safe nose gear down indication. First Officer Tompkins radios to Maui Tower, Be advised, we have no nose gear. We are landing without the nose gear. Tower responds, Okay, if you need any other assistance, advise. First Officer Tompkins says, We'll need all the equipment you've got. The time is now 1.56 p.m., 11 minutes post-explosive decompression, and First Officer Tompkins asks the captain, is it easier to control with the flaps up? Captain Schornsheimer replies, yeah, put them at 5. With flaps changed from 15 and back at 5, the plane becomes easier to control again. So the pilots of Flight 243 gain better control with the flaps up at 5 and with the plane flying at a faster speed, but they want to land, and generally when you land, you have to slow down to about 150 miles per hour. Unfortunately, when they do slow down, they lose control, so they have to crunch some numbers in the cockpit and decide how fast to land this plane with the flaps at 5. The captain asks, can you give me a V-speed for a flaps 5 landing? After a minute and a half of crunching numbers and talking out the problem aloud, First Officer Tompkins confirms that their landing speed with flaps at 5 should be 152 knots, which is about 175 miles per hour. As if these guys didn't already have enough on their plate at the moment, at the beginning of this approach, the left engine goes out. 
The damage to the cabin floor due to the explosive decompression has separated the engine control cables from the number one engine. Captain Schwartz timer puts the engine start switch in the flight position in an attempt to restart the number one engine, the left engine, but the engine won't restart. So it's 1.58 p.m. and Aloha Airlines Flight 243 is flying on one engine. 18 feet of fuselage ceiling has been ripped off. The cockpit is only connected to the rest of the plane through some floorboards. The feel in the cockpit is bouncy, like they're on the edge of a diving board overlooking a swimming pool. The pilots aren't sure that their nose gear is down or functional. They can't communicate with the flight attendants in the back. They have to land this damaged plane at a much faster speed than usual because when they slow down, they lose control. They don't know how badly the plane is damaged and whether it can take the force of a landing. The plane is open to the air as they're traveling 190 miles an hour and bits of debris are blowing around in the plane. So it's not the easiest, most calming environment of a landing of a plane to say the least. Finally, a little good news trickles into the cockpit. Maui Tower that now has a visual on the plane radios over. Aloha 243, just for your information, the gear appears down. Gear appears down. First Officer Tompkins says to the captain, want me to go flaps 40, help you with the brakes? Captain Schwarzheimer replies, no, on the ground. At 1.58 p.m. and 45 seconds, Aloha Airlines Flight 243 lands safely on runway 02 at Kahului Airport on the island of Maui. The number two engine, the right engine, was used for reverse thrust to slow the plane. Speed brakes were also used. During the rollout, flaps were extended to 40. Maui Tower radios over. Aloha 243, just shut her down where you are. Everything is fine. The gear did. Fire trucks are on the way. Both Captain Schornstheimer and First Officer Tompkins breathe a heavy sigh of relief. An emergency evacuation was completed on the runway. Once everyone was off the plane, a head count was done, and it was discovered that one person was missing from the flight. Flight attendant Clarabelle Lansing, known to her colleagues as CB, was unaccounted for. Flight attendant Lansing was at row 5 providing service to passengers when the incident occurred. Passengers said that they saw her sucked out of the plane through a hole in the left side of the fuselage when the explosive decompression happened. The U.S. Coast Guard headed a three-day search using Marine Corps helicopters, airplanes, and ships, but unfortunately, Flight Attendant Lansing's body was never recovered. Flight Attendant C.B. Lansing was born on the island of Kauai and joined Aloha Airlines as one of its first flight attendants right out of high school. She worked for Aloha for 37 years. An assistant station manager for Aloha Airlines, Larry Miller, said, Clarabelle Lansing was the nicest old-timer there that knew her customers, her regulars. She called them by first name. She called me by first name. That was something to me. She was total Aloha customer service. She was the textbook model of a good stewardess. She always had a garden of flowers in her hair, not just one or two. Captain Schwarzheimer said about flight attendant Lansing, her life was the airline, and that she had the respect of all her fellow flight attendants. Lansing always stressed obeying the rules and returning to stations once duties were complete. Dale Randalls, a regular customer of Aloha Airlines, described Lansing as very personable. She reminds you of the top-of-the-line flight attendants you see on major carriers. She was a beautiful woman. You could ask her anything and she'd answer your questions. Flight attendant Clarabelle Lansing was survived by her husband, Robert Lansing, that worked for the University of Hawaii. Flight attendant Lansing was the only fatality on Flight 243. 
Flight attendant Sato Tomita was seriously injured along with seven other seriously injured passengers. 57 other passengers had minor injuries. 94 out of 95 human beings on board Flight 243 survived the incident. The island of Maui only had a few ambulances at the time, and these ambulances didn't show up until seven minutes after the plane landed, so a number of buses used for tourists helped in getting the injured to the hospital. The airplane was in such poor condition with dented horizontal stabilizers and the engines damaged after having sucked in debris that the plane was dismantled on site at Maui Airport and deemed unrepairable. So now we have to ask, what happened to Flight 243? We know an explosive decompression occurred, but why did this happen? Wasn't the plane being inspected on a regular basis? How does the top of a 737 just rip off mid-flight? Well, investigators looking into the cause of the incident on Flight 243 looked at the way that Boeing 737s were constructed in the late 1960s and early 1970s. The outer walls of the plane were built with large sheets of metal called fuselage plates. These fuselage plates are connected together to build the outside skin of the aircraft. Where these individual fuselage plates meet and are joined together is called a lap joint. At the lap joint on 737s in the late 60s, these plates are connected by two things, rows of rivets and epoxy. Epoxy is an adhesive, like a very strong glue. So you overlay your two fuselage plates on top of each other, and you add several rows of rivets to attach the two plates together and hold them in place. However, as the plane goes up in the sky and is pressurized on the inside and flies through air that is less dense and at a lower pressure on the outside, the skin of the plane expands. When stress is put on these lap joints or these areas where the fuselage plates are connected, You don't want all that stress to fall on those rows of rivets holding the fuselage plates in place. So at the time, Boeing was using epoxy, the adhesive at these lap joints, to help strengthen the bond between these fuselage plates. They were reasoning that the epoxy would absorb much of the stress of these pressurization cycles instead of all that stress being on the rivets. Boeing stated that their 737s were designed to last for 51,000 flight hours, 20 years, and 75,000 flight or pressurization cycles. What the plane used for Flight 243 was 19 years old, just under the 20-year threshold. It had 35,496 flight hours, again under the 51,000 flight hour threshold as it was designed for. However, it had experienced over 89,000 pressurization cycles. That's over 14,000 more flight cycles than it was designed to endure. All these flight cycles over time were gradually weakening the bond of these lap joints where the fuselage plates were being held together. One analogy I was thinking about while researching this episode is that a new airplane is like a fresh pair of underwear. At first you get that new pair of undies and you put it on your body and that elastic waistband, it really hugs you. It's a tight fit. As the days and months pass, you wear that underwear and you stretch it. Then you hopefully wash and dry it. You wear that underwear again, and you stretch that elastic some more, and then you wash and dry it again. Slowly, over the course of months, maybe even years, all those underwear-wearing cycles add up. One day, maybe a year or two down the line, you reach in your drawer and you pull out that once new but now aged pair of undies to find a rather limp and rippled waistband. The elastic in the waistband is worn out. And if you have the budget and self-discipline to do so, you toss those undies in the waste bin and you purchase some new ones. 
Well, the walls of the 737 built in the late 1960s and the stress from the flight cycles they endure add up over time and weaken the strength of those lap joints. Just as over time, the elastic in your underwear weakens after repeated stress, stretching, and use. Michael, at the risk of sounding irreverent or insensitive in any way, let's just say that my undies are a little stressed. They're like old tattered sails just flapping in the wind. Sounds like it's time for you to get some new underwear. Investigators observed that the epoxy used to bond the lap joints of the plane used for flight 243 had evidence of heavy corrosion. Apparently the climate of Hawaii exposed the epoxy to humidity and salt, which corroded and weakened the epoxy over time. After 19 years of flying the plane in this tropical climate, and after 89,000 pressurization cycles, the epoxy had lost its effectiveness, was no longer absorbing the stress as it was supposed to, and a lot of the stress was being transferred to the rivets holding the fuselage plates together. These rivets were not designed to tackle this amount of stress alone. Thousands of microscopic cracks started forming around these rivets, and on April 28, 1988, at 1.45 p.m., as the plane was pressurized and cruising along to 24,000 feet, the lap joints finally gave way to this pressure. 35 square meters of the walls and ceiling of the fuselage surrounding the first-class area were ripped away from the aircraft in an explosive decompression. Tear strips were built into the walls of Boeing 737s, which were supposed to confine any outer wall ruptures to a 10-square-inch area, but since there were thousands of undetected microscopic cracks, all the cracks simply joined together and allowed the plane to be ripped apart. Investigators talked to a passenger that was on board Flight 243, Gail Yamamoto, and she told them that she had seen a crack in the outside wall of the plane prior to boarding. Gail said the crack was alongside an upper row of rivets between the cabin door and the edge of the jet bridge hood. Unfortunately, she assumed that proper inspections had been done, and she didn't mention this information to anyone prior to the flight. In July 1972, with a revision in February 1974, Boeing sent out a service bulletin warning of corrosion of lap joints to operators of Boeing 737s that were manufactured in the late 60s or early 70s. Aloha Airlines received this warning, but didn't take steps to address the issue. Flight 243 also drew attention to some of the poor maintenance practices of Aloha Airlines at the time. As planes age and accumulate flight hours, they have to undergo regular maintenance checks to ensure that all the plane systems are working correctly and that the structural integrity of the plane is still up to snuff. Now, there's different levels of checks in the world of aviation. There's A checks, B checks, C and D checks, with HX being your most frequently done inspection, but less in depth, and D-checks being very thorough, very costly, yet infrequent. The same way you might have a different level of inspection on your car. Let's say you're going on a two-hour road trip. You might check your car's oil, might make sure you have some coolant in the reservoir, and might make sure your gas is full, and that's it. On the other hand, if you're planning a 10,000-mile journey across the United States and back, you might drop off your car at the mechanic for a more extensive inspection so you can look at your tires, brakes, engine mounts, and a million other aspects of your car to make sure that you can make the long journey there and back safely. Well, airlines have different levels and depths for inspections for their planes too. These generally correspond to the flight hours that each plane accumulates over time. First, there's line checks that happen all day long. 
Your average aircraft gets around 12 hours of line checks a week where maintenance take a look at wheels, brakes, fluid levels, and any repairs that airplane sensors call for. These are common and basically happening all the time. Next, A checks take place every 8 to 10 weeks or every 400 to 600 flight hours. And the A checks focus on things like lubricating hydraulic systems, which control flight controls, checking emergency equipment, like making sure the inflatable slide is working correctly. These A checks can be completed overnight and they usually take 50 to 60 man hours to complete. So if you have a number of maintenance dudes, they can knock out this inspection overnight with an eight hour period. As you go through B checks and C checks, the inspections get more intensive and take more time to complete. B checks take place every six to eight months and take up to 150 man hours to complete. B checks are more in depth than A checks and include torque tests, flight control tests, inspection of engine components and replacement of aircraft parts. C checks take place every year and a half to two years and these C check inspections take up to three weeks to complete. Aircraft have to be taken out of service for weeks during these C-checks. Instead of being handled at the gate or at an airport hangar, these usually happen at a maintenance facility. They take up to 6,000 man-hours to complete. Fuel lines are checked, door seals are checked, flap asymmetry is checked, electronics are checked. It's a big project compared to the A and B checks. Lastly, we have the dinosaur-sized D-check. During the D-check, You basically disassemble the entire plane and put it back together. You rip out all the seats, the galley, the overhead bins, so your inspectors can go in and tweak out, checking the skin of the fuselage and making sure there isn't any wear or tear or cracking happening to the walls of the aircraft that might have gone unnoticed during these lighter, less intense inspections. Engines are removed from the plane's pylons and closely inspected. Landing gear is removed. All systems are thoroughly scrutinized and either reinstalled, repaired, or completely replaced. D-checks happen every 6 to 10 years, depending on how much an airplane is used. D-checks cost upwards of $1 million, require 50,000 man-hours, and can take up to two months to complete. I feel like once this quarantine is over, I'm going to need a D-check. Me too. Me too, probably. So it's a massive, massive undertaking and creates quite the cost to airlines in both taking a plane out of service that can't bring in any income for two months and then paying it for maintenance to complete this massive task. Well, in the investigation of Flight 243, it was discovered that Aloha Airlines was trying to mitigate the expense and burden of these two-month-long D-checks by breaking up the D-check into 52 smaller segments of work. Instead of doing the entire D-check at once, they just do a little part of the D-check one day, another part another day, and slowly complete their D-check by doing it in 52 different smaller chunks. Instead of doing the entire D-check in one continuous work period, they ask their maintenance to do some of these D-check tasks during an overnight B-check. So instead of having a super alert group of inspectors scrutinizing the structural integrity of the aircraft walls in a well-lit maintenance facility in the middle of the day, they had a maintenance employee that was used to doing overnight B-checks, doing a less thorough look over the aircraft in an airport hangar that isn't very well lit in the middle of the night using artificial light. In the middle of the night, human beings' brains aren't as sharp as they are during the middle of the day. And these fatigue cracks along the walls of the plane that would be Flight 243 went unnoticed. 
The NTSB released their findings on Aloha Airlines Flight 243 on June 14, 1989. In the report, the NTSB states that the probable cause of the crash was the failure of Aloha Airlines maintenance program to detect the presence of significant disbonding and fatigue damage, which ultimately led to the failure of the lap joint at the S10L and the separation of the fuselage upper lobe. Contributing to the accident were the failure of Aloha Airlines management to supervise properly its maintenance force, the failure of the FAA to require Airworthiness Directive 87-21-08, inspection of all the lap joints proposed by Boeing Alert Service Bulletin SB-737-53A-1039, and the lack of a complete terminating action neither generated by Boeing nor required by the FAA, after the discovery of early production difficulties in the Boeing 737 cold bond lap joint, which resulted in low bond durability, corrosion, and premature fatigue cracking. An interesting aspect of this report is that Joseph T. Nall, a member of the NTSB investigation team that helped with the report, wrote a dissenting statement that was included in the report. He argued that the probable cause I just read was too narrow. He didn't think Aloha Airlines was solely to blame for failing to detect the fatigue damage. He thought it was a system-wide failure that Aloha, Boeing, and the FAA were all to blame for failing to foresee and take steps to prevent a lap joint failure, which could lead to an incident like the one that occurred on board Flight 243. So how did the incident on board Aloha Airlines Flight 243 make flying safer? Flight 243 highlighted for the world of aviation the danger of insufficient inspection for older and heavily used aircraft. Clearly, inspection teams did a poor job of looking over the plane used for Flight 243 to ensure that the plane was safe to fly. The report called for better training and recertification of airline maintenance inspectors. All airlines with aging planes realized that they had to look over their fleet with a sharper eye to ensure that any damage to aging aircraft wasn't escaping detection. The FAA began the National Aging Aircraft Research Program, which helped identify planes that may start developing safety concerns due to their prolonged use and age. Next, Flight 243 showed the importance of following service bulletins from airline manufacturers. In 1974, 15 years earlier, Boeing sent Aloha a service bulletin, warning of the exact type of corrosion and lap joints that led to the incident on Flight 243. These service bulletins aren't friendly suggestions. They are serious warnings that need to be heeded and acted upon. A few months after the accident in 1988, the U.S. Congress passed the Aviation Safety Research Act, which promoted stricter research into the probable causes of future accidents. Greater research was done in the field of aging aircraft. Lastly, Flight 243 was another example of where a passenger saw something that caught her eye, a crack in the side of the plane, she assumed that maintenance, the pilots, the airline already knew about it and they wouldn't want to hear from her. It reminded me of the passengers on British Midland Flight 92 that saw flames coming out of the left engine and heard the pilot say he shut down the right engine. Again, those passengers assumed the pilots knew what they were doing and didn't speak up. Flight 243 was another lesson in the importance of passengers speaking up if they see something strange. Passengers should be encouraged to speak up if they see something out of place, and flight attendants, pilots should welcome any helpful information they might have. So that's how Aloha Airlines Flight 243 helped make flying safer for us today. Yeah, I always agree with the um, principle of speaking up. I feel like I'm the type of passenger that 
um, flags down a flight attendant when there's too much turbulence. So yeah, worst case scenario, they're there to calm you down. And if you notice something, speak up and they should be receptive to it. I think if a flight attendant was to like shame you for saying something that would be wrong. Right. Yeah. Then they're not doing their job very well. Yeah. So Tess, what did you think about the story of flight 243? Those pilots sure had to battle through some stressful circumstances to get that plane on the ground, huh? The big thing that stuck out to me with this one was the cockpit communication. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was really strong and part of the reason why things ended the way that they did. Yeah, they both were very professional and uh, worked well together. I thought there was, you know, a host of issues that they had to deal with. I thought we could kind of go through them, um, what the pilots on flight 243 had to deal with. First off, the explosive decompression occurs. Just dealing with that initial rush of adrenaline that comes along with that type of event, keeping control of your emotions must be pretty hard, right? Right, yeah. And they had to get the plane down to an altitude where everyone could breathe quickly enough. Yeah, definitely. That was another thing on my list is just that lack of oxygen. They can't communicate with the flight attendants, can't find out any more information, you know, maybe how many passengers are hurt, what kind of injuries are on board, what the damage to the plane looks like. That must have been difficult. There must have been a lot of sounds and noises and just like um, auditory and visual stimuli that would have been distracting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a moment where uh, I think the first officer says that there's you know, uh, swirling gray insulation in the cockpit and there's 300 mile an hour winds and freezing cold air. That's Mm got to be stressful to deal with that. Uh, The left engine goes out because the cable to the control for that engine separates. So they're flying on one engine. That was pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. The nose gear won't light up. So they have the added anxiety while they're coming down of wondering if this nose gear is down and if it is down, Will it hold when we land on it? Right. It sounds like they were assuming that it wasn't down. They were operating under that assumption, even though it ended up being down. Yeah, it seemed like the entire time they were afraid that at any moment, this plane can completely fall apart. So we need to get it down on the ground as soon as humanly possible. Yeah, definitely. Another issue they had to deal with was at times the controls felt stiff. If they fly the plane too slow then the plane becomes hard to control. So they had to keep the flaps at five and had to fly and land the plane at 175, 180 miles an hour instead of 150 miles an hour, meaning Mm -hmm. that's more stress that's going to be on that nose gear that they're uncertain about. I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely. Just the composure that they maintained and, and the fact that they kept their cool is really impressive. I think about that in terms of like just driving on the highway for me can be an anxiety producing experience and the fact that these pilots are able to think under pressure is so incredibly admirable and impressive definitely i mean given all these issues the pilots had to deal with the fact that they were able to get flight 243 on the ground and save 94 lives is a pretty amazing feat absolutely yeah um, I thought it was really interesting what you said about the passenger seeing that large crack in the plane. I wonder how she felt after experiencing that crash and, and realizing that that crack probably had something to do with it. I don't I, think she, I mean, I think getting on any plane, you assume, I would assume, I would have done the same thing she did. 
I don't think I would have been like, hey, I'm an expert. Let me get the pilot and the flight attendant and maintenance up here right now. You know, I think yeah. she, what she did was human nature. But we're as as we've come along in uh, aviation history, we've learned that there was a number of things that happened where passengers saw something and they didn't speak up. And this mm-hmm. is just part of CRM. It's kind of cool. As a passenger, you're part of the flight experience. Yeah. You, pilots should talk to each other. They should talk to second officers. They should talk to flight attendants. And passengers are part of the equation. That's pretty cool. If you see something, say something. Yeah. And worst case scenario, somebody will say, you're wrong. That's this. I think uh, we've been on a flight before where we heard a weird noise and mentioned it to the flight attendant. She's like, oh, that's just what happens when you start the engines. It was like a weird smell. I think it was like Mm. it smelled like gasoline in the uh, cabin. And she was like, that always happens when you start the engine. So that's the worst that's going to happen. I think it's good to speak up. And she put our minds at ease. I mean, one other thing is, how would you deal with being a passenger on this plane? It must have been crazy to instantaneously be blasted by 300 mile an hour winds, freezing cold, huge hole in the plane. And then a flight attendant comes up to you and says, do you know how to fly a plane? I know. I was thinking about that too. You're basically on a roller coaster at Mm -hmm. 20,000 feet. It's pretty insane. One uh, common topic discussed in articles about this incident online is the fluid hammer theory. This theory puts forth the idea that the skin of the fuselage wasn't torn apart immediately all at the same time in one swoop. This theory says that one 10-inch square section of the fuselage gave way, created an intense force of wind blowing, sucking out the cabin air, and flight attendant Lansing gets caught in this hole for a second. By plugging up this force... It creates a super strong pressure all around this original 10-inch square that gave away, and that is what caused the plane to eventually rip apart. Hmm, Interesting. What do you think about the probable cause dispute inside the uh, NTSB? I thought that was a kind of interesting aspect. Do you think Aloha Airlines alone should have been responsible for making sure their plane was safe to fly? Or do you agree with the dissenting member that this was a system-wide failure, that FAA... Aloha, Boeing all failed to recognize the danger of lap joints bonded together with epoxy and that this kind of situation could arise out of it. I think it was a system-wide failure. It Mm -hmm. seems like Boeing had a manufacturing defect and Mm -hmm. they sent out a service bulletin um, and never followed up uh, to see, you know, if if the airline had taken care of it. Yeah, It's kind of like, yeah, it's like giving someone a car rental and that is defective and expecting that they'll just make the repairs themselves and figure it out themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. Boeing should have like, in addition to sending the service bulletin, just don't just send that bulletin and be like, Oh, we're done now. Just send your employees out there and be like, we have to investigate this plane. We sold you this million dollar plane. We sold you because we used a process that causes corrosion in the epoxy. So we're just, in addition to sending you the service bulletin, we're going to come and inspect the plane and make sure you did it or possibly, figure out a time that our people can come and repair it for you. So I agree with you. I do think it was a system-wide failure as well. First officer Mimi Tompkins went on to become a captain and flew for Aloha until 2008 and then worked for Hawaiian Airlines. In 2010, she received the Pilots Assistance Award from the Airline Pilots Association. She was recognized for her efforts in developing programs and supporting pilots that have had to deal with psychological trauma from flight incidents. She helped lead the critical incident response program that aided pilots, assisting them with dealing with their emotions following tragic events. Captain Tompkins has supported scholarship programs for aspiring young women that are learning to fly. What do you think about that, Tess? 
I think it's great, Michael. Yeah, I think it's cool that she's like a hero that's going to get more women to become pilots. Obviously, we've talked about in the past that being an airline pilot is really a occupation dominated by men. And I think, you know, hopefully this story and all the work she's done in her life, it's a great billboard for young women to see that and be like, I want to be a pilot too. Absolutely. Captain Robert Schornsteimer remained with Aloha Airlines until he retired in 2005. He gave an interview to the Maui News in 2018 and said of the initial explosion, it was almost like being in a dream at that point because it was so unexpected. Your mind tries to protect you from what's going on. You're just sort of dazed. I did turn right back around and put my oxygen mask on as I was trained to. I signaled to my co-pilot that I was taking control of the plane. Captain Schwarzheimer goes on to say, I would just totally focus on having to make it. I didn't have time to dwell on what would happen if I didn't. You always have to maintain the big picture, and the big picture is to fly the airplane, keep it under control, and at the same time figure out what you're going to do. Most of what I did in the air was done, to be honest with you, by memory. It was all done from experience and recollection and determining what was most important at the time. One of the dangers for people that go through an event of this magnitude, they're changed forever, really. You never really get over it. They say the best thing to do was talk about it a lot, but I didn't do that much. Oh, well, I feel bad that he didn't do that, but I'm, again, just impressed with the... I feel like the disposition of a great pilot is someone that just can, among other things, handle stress well, and it seems like he is embodies that yeah he did that and uh captain tompkins did it i think both of them kept their cool and the other thing i'm impressed with just from researching it neither of them went for the glory of being like i'm a hero celebrate me none of them went on a massive media tour both of them just did their job and guess what they both went back to work and flew planes for two decades longer and got people through the air and got them to where they needed to be. I think it was just like, I like that professionalism, people showing up and just doing their job the best they can. Definitely. I would feel good um, being a passenger in one of their planes. Me too. Passenger Eric Becklin said of his experience, all of a sudden I heard a loud noise, a bang, but not an explosion and felt a strong pressure change. I thought, oh shit, this is it. I'm done. I looked up front and saw the front of the top left of the airplane disintegrating, just going apart, pieces of it flying away. It started with a hole about a yard wide, and it just kept coming apart. I thought it was all going to fall apart before he could land it. There was no warning at all, but a whole new perspective on the word sudden. I remember thinking about things like, I don't have enough life insurance. There's nothing I could do about that. I tried to get some peace with the world, but there was too much noise and too much debris flying around, so that never happened. I felt an incredible sadness that I wouldn't see my family again. But in the next instant, all the people in the back of the plane looked at each other, and there was this incredible wave of hope as the plane continued forward. We all start talking instantly, babbling that the pilot was going to be able to land the plane. Oh, well, it sounds like that must have been an incredibly surreal experience, but it's it's nice that the passengers were able to just talk to each other and remain hopeful and keep each other calm. Yeah. It sounds like a movie set to me. It sounds like universal studios, Hollywood or something. Passenger Patricia Aubrey said of her flight experience that at first she thought the plane was going to go in the water and sharks were going to eat her. Then she saw Mount Haleakala on Maui and thought the plane was going to crash into the mountain. Then she saw the plane was lowering to the runway and she thought she was going to burn in the plane after it crash landed on the runway 
Turns out she was wrong all three times and she survived, but I related to her anxious thoughts. How about you, Tess? Definitely. I feel like both those testimonials kind of show how many different thoughts are must be entering your mind when that's happening. Yeah, definitely. One thought I had was, uh, given this current state of the world, I wonder if airlines are doing D-checks like crazy right now, completely dismantling planes and putting them back together. I bet airline executives are probably like, hey, if we send our employees home right now, they're just going to be like sitting around drinking and doing puzzles anyway. Let's give them a real life puzzle and keep them paid. Now take this 757 completely apart and put it back together. That would be nice if that was the case and we were able to come back to a bunch of squeaky clean planes. Yeah, that had been thoroughly, thoroughly inspected. Aloha Airlines eventually started servicing the mainland U.S. on Valentine's Day in the year 2000. The airline flew from Oakland, Las Vegas, Burbank, Reno, San Diego, Sacramento, Vancouver, all to Honolulu. The airline tried a number of times to merge with Hawaiian Airlines to no avail. On March 31st, 2008, Aloha Airlines ceased scheduled passenger flight operations. At the time, the airline had a fleet of 22 planes, so Aloha Airlines is no longer flying the friendly skies. Well, I guess it's Aloha to Aloha Airlines. Yes, and I think that's going to do it for Aloha Airlines Flight 243. Tess, are you ready to hear a few stories in the world of airline news? I am, Michael. Well, Tess, JetBlue announced this past week as a show of appreciation for healthcare workers that have been putting their lives on the line for the greater good during this pandemic. The airline will be giving away 100,000 pairs of round-trip flight certificates to healthcare workers, which they can use for future travel. Joanna Garrity, president and COO of JetBlue, said in a statement, JetBlue's mission of inspiring humanity is stronger now more than ever. We applaud the healthcare workers who are helping us get through this challenging time and inspiring humanity along the way. This is an opportunity for us to fly it forward and show our appreciation for the heroic efforts of medical professionals, first responders, and public servants, not just here in our home of New York, but around the country as well. JetBlue is calling on people to nominate healthcare workers that have been helping them get through this crisis, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, therapists, If you go to jetblue.com forward slash healthcare hero, you can nominate whoever is taking care of you so they can possibly get two round trip tickets on JetBlue for the future. JetBlue also flew three planes low over New York this past week as a company endorsed salute to New York City workers. What do you think about this, Tess? Well, uh, if there's anything New Yorkers like, it's low flying planes. Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) Um, No, but I think it's good. I think it's, um, I like that phrase, uh, fly it forward. Yeah, that was witty. Yeah, it um, really shows that you get back what you put out. Yeah, and I think the airlines got to realize this is painful now. This isn't going to last forever. So now's the time to buy some goodwill. It's nice to see some companies showing a little humanity instead of being solely profit-driven or business-minded. Frontier Airlines raised eyebrows this past week when the company announced a plan to charge customers $39 to ensure an empty middle seat when flying on their airline. Given the recent health scare and the fact that many other airlines already blocked the selling of middle seats as a courtesy to passengers, the added charge Frontier was flirting with struck many as poor form by the company. After the airline was scolded on social media and a number of news sites, the airline canceled the policy. Frontier CEO Barry Biffle said in a statement, We recognize the concerns raised that we are profiting from safety. This was never our intent. We simply wanted to provide our customers with an option for more space. Frontier also made headlines this past week, offering $11 flights from Denver to Las Vegas. Tusty, how do you feel about Frontier? Are you interested in an $11 flight? 
Well, I think that if they wanted to keep their passengers safe, they could have done it for free. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think uh, the more room policy just seemed pretty tone deaf to me. And I often wonder if companies these days put out things that they know is just going to grab headlines. And even if it's negative, any publicity looks like good publicity. We just got our name in the papers forever. So it seemed like kind of so absurd that somebody with a nickel's worth of sense would have figured that one out. I don't know. I feel like that was just a bonehead mistake. Yeah. I bet the, you know, you can get a flight now for $11, but they're still probably going to charge you 15 bucks for a glass of wine. Exactly. I don't think I'll be um, taking them up on that $11 flight, Michael. Yeah. Not anytime soon, at least. I'll be flying JetBlue or I'll be nominating friends to fly on JetBlue. Sounds good. There was a story online about the longevity of the Boeing 747 and its important role that it's currently playing in cargo service during this pandemic. While only two 747s are currently being operated worldwide for passenger service, almost 300 are flying through the skies as freighter planes, bringing life-saving medical devices and supplies to regions of the world that need goods. Tatyana Arsolanova, COO for a Moscow-based cargo line, said of the 747, its three compartments can have different temperature settings from 39 degrees to 84 degrees, giving us extra opportunities to transport perishable cargo, such as temperature-sensitive pharmaceuticals and life-saving medical equipment. The nose cargo door gives us the opportunity to load off-size cargo that enables us to carry extra-long pipes, diesel generators, compressors, pumps, and other large and heavy offshore equipment. Travel industry analyst Henry Hardevelt sang the praises of the 747 and its reliability for cargo deliveries in 2020. He said of the 747 and its 50 years of flying through the skies, I'm sure there are people who worked on the project at Boeing who are not at all surprised that the 747 is a knight in shining armor. The plane is shown repeatedly in history when the chips are down, the 747 can be counted on to come to the rescue. Tess, does it make you happy to know the queen of the skies is still out there making life better for humans on the planet? Absolutely. Tis a noble calling. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why, but 747s are probably my favorite aircraft. I love watching like Instagram videos of them taking off and landing. I just think they're so iconic and beautiful to me. I love the idea that 50 years ago, a product was designed and brought to the market. And 50 years later, though I'm sure there's been some updates along the way, we still find it useful. We're not ready to move on. We don't view it as disposable. I think it's a credit to the designers. Yeah, they feel like all American planes. The Boeing 747. Oh, it's beautiful. Lastly, in mid-April on a Southwest flight from Fort Lauderdale to my original hometown, St. Louis, Missouri, passenger Bob Pitts was flying to St. Louis to attend at a wake for his mother. Bob was surprised to find that he was the only passenger on the plane. Bob Pitts made a number of videos documenting his flight experience. And one he says, We're going in our little flight from Fort Lauderdale to St. Louis. It's about 8.30 and I'm the only person on the plane. During the pre-flight announcement, flight attendants personally addressed him saying, Welcome aboard, Bob. (laughs) The pilot of the Southwest flight waved him and said, Hi, Bob. When asked by a flight attendant mid-flight if he's doing okay, he responded, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much. Doing just perfect. I feel like I'm VIP. I'm just making a video talking to myself. There's nobody to talk to. That's funny. I feel like uh, if I were Bob, I would totally pretend I was on a private plane the whole time. 
Yeah, I love Bob. He's so cool. I hope he's doing okay out there. I feel like too often we treat other people in the world like robots. And we treat airline employees, hotel employees, restaurant employees like robots that are just there to perform a function for us. Reading this story and having these people interact in such a personal way and use his name, I, I hope we retain that respect and connection. I feel like people are making a lot of connection and appreciating uh, that human connection more and more these days. It's definitely really heartwarming. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of PCPC. Thank you to Tess Andrade for being the wonderful guest and producer that she is. Anything you want to say to the people before we go? Um, nothing big, Michael. Just, just thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks to our Patreon crew. If you have a moment, go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. You can become a supporter of PCPC and we really appreciate your help. Check us out on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. We still love reviews. I've really given uh, put reviews on the back burner. Haven't talked about them too much, but we still love reviews. Yeah, it's funny. You haven't talked about reviews as much as you usually do, but I know you still love them. I still love the reviews, so give me some reviews, people. Uh, check out PlaneCrashPod.com. Tess designed our website there. I hope you guys all have an amazing week. Keep the faith. Be there for your friends and family. I know this sucks right now, but someday we're going to go on vacation again. Maybe not in the near future, but someday. Someday you're going to have an iced cold cocktail in the skies again. Let's keep that in mind and stay safe. Take care of each other right now. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to try and get you another episode as soon as I can. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Make you smile